Welcome to Real Estate Pro Tips and Strategies. The theme is how to buy a home or sell a home in a changing real estate market. Hi, my name is Pete Sabine and I'm here with my team partner, Leslie Whitney. We are real estate professionals with Compass and the five-star real estate team here in the San Francisco Bay Area. We want to share with you our real estate expertise to give you a competitive edge and provide insight with useful information so you can make an informed decision for your next home purchase. Leslie and I break down the most important aspects of real estate. Future podcasts will reveal how to navigate as a home buyer or seller. Let's begin our podcast. Welcome to our second podcast. This one is called Finding the Money, How to Qualify for a Home Loan. Today we have our guest, Bob Casper. Bob is a senior loan officer with Cross Country Mortgage, and Bob has been in the business for 36 years. Um, he's very knowledgeable about home loans, and he's wonderful to work with. It's very important to have a great working relationship with your lender. Um, it becomes quite the personal relationship, actually, as you go through your transaction. Buying a home is not as simple as finding a home for sale, making an offer, and then handing over a large amount of money. Lots of things go into um, getting the correct loan for you and using it for your purchase. Most of us will need to obtain a loan to make a home purchase. And even if you have done something like that before, even if you've bought a home before, the home loan process can be complicated and confusing. And over the years, uh, lots has changed. Today, we will provide expert advice and tips so that you will know what to expect when you apply for your home loan. So Bob, let's start with the very first question. And this is something that we get asked a lot. What is the difference between a home loan and a mortgage? First of all, thanks for, thanks for having us, having me together with you guys today. Uh, just, there actually really isn't um, a difference technically between a home loan and a mortgage, but a home loan is more of a marketing term to help people understand that they're borrowing money secured by a home. Mortgage is the technical name for the financial instrument. Okay, interesting. Good to know. And so what is the difference between a loan pre-qualification and a loan pre-approval? We see those words often when we're shopping around for loans on the internet, um, and there is a difference between the two, pre-qualification or pre-approval. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, you bet. Uh, actually, there's a significant difference between the two. So to start with, and, and it really does go in that order, a pre-qualification is, is, although some people can have different definitions of this, but I would say the industry, probably 80 or 90% would agree with this, that a pre-qualification is an initial evaluation that people get to figure out what they qualify for in terms of trying to borrow money to, to buy their first their first place or, or buy a home or a condominium. They're, when they're qualified initially, it could just be a phone call, it could be an email, um, and it could be real brief. Um, so a pre-qualification could be as simple as having a, a one-minute conversation or email interchange with someone. Somebody crunches some numbers for them, gets back to them and says, you can afford to do this. And, uh, or it could go all the way to actually significant number of steps of actually a, a more lengthy discussion of their whole financial situation, um, evaluating and looking at their credit history, um, looking at their income documentation, and so we'll get into a little bit more of what documentation is needed, 
um, and then actually issuing an opinion on where they stand based on that. So as you can see, there's quite a wide range there. And when somebody gets a letter, it can make it really challenging to understand how valuable that really is. So when you're looking at a pre-qualification letter, are there some telltale things in that letter that might help somebody understand if it's really just a pre-qualification in disguise? Yeah, good question, Pete. The, I would, the, the, a few. Some of them can fool you and they'll make it look like they really are a full pre-approval letter. And by the way, just to, to get to that, a full pre-approval um, should be, but isn't always, should be the steps that borrowers will go through to have their employment, their credit, uh, their income, their um, any kind of uh, debt repayment, title history related to, you know, anything basically about them financially, reviewed, analyzed, and calculated so as to, to figure out what they qualify for. And it's then it's more than just one person's opinion, such as myself, but it's actually coming from an underwriting committee or an underwriting person who actually has that professional duty for a, for a bank or an institution. And then it's just something a little more that you can count on. So back to your question, Pete, about anything's telltale on a pre-qualification letter to tell you what it is. Number one is the word pre-qualification used right. to begin with. The other one then mainly would be what we'd call the conditions or the um, subject to's. They'll oftentimes word it as subject to's. So what does that mean? Um, you're pre-qualified to purchase a $300,000, um, you know, home, you know, putting 10% down for the down payment, but it's subject to, and then if you see about six or eight or 10 or more items listed there, right. probably mm -hmm. means it's, there's not a lot of evaluation that's gone on there yet. Yeah, so I think when I talk to my clients about the difference, it's a pre-qualification is a loan officer's opinion, whereas a pre-approval is an underwriter that's confirmed and verified the information that goes through the loan approval process. Is that kind of a simplistic way of helping I, them understand that? I, I do. Yeah. The only thing I'm, that might be important to point out here is that even though it's worded a pre-approval, doesn't mean it is a pre-approval. Right. right, and that's the thing. We're seeing that misused. It's like Kleenex and tissue, and some <laughs> it's gotten that bad. It's like, do you really know? And and I, we've had a lot of clients come to us thinking they're all buttoned down, dialed in, ready to go, and we discover that they're so far from that that they have to actually kind of start over and, and go through the whole process of being verified and confirmed. Yes, and well, how, how many of us have had solicitations in the mail for a credit card. And it says pre-approved on it. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of this comes from the marketing that comes from just trying to help people think, hey, you're almost done. Mm -hmm. You don't want people to think that it's there's work involved to get something. Right. Or that you're, we already love you, you know? Yeah. And so the lending industry's adapted to that. Um, and, you know, for a lot of companies, um, your banks are a little more conservative on the whole, so they'll be careful with that language. Uh, but there are a lot of mortgage brokers, mortgage bankers, credit unions. They'll often still use the term pre-approval, um, but it really doesn't mean that the file has been fully looked at by the right people. Mm -hmm. And have to, to your point, to have something that you can really count on. Does a, a bona fide pre-approval letter have an expiration date on it? Mm. It says you're pre-approved up till June 1st, 2021. And, you know, is that a clue that you're really up there with the pre-approval? Yes, uh, that's a, another good point. It, it, a a pre-qualification will usually not list a, an expiration date. Yeah. 
but a pre-approval that's more bona fide um, should state something, this commitment is good until a certain date. Or it may even say things like, the documents that have been reviewed will expire on a certain date, and then they need to be re-reviewed again, Okay. for example. Mm -hmm. So that does give you, yeah, uh, just a little more of an indication that it's something that, that is you know, more significant that you can, you know, that you can go to the bank on. Right. Okay. Term. okay. Well, we do know that this pre-approval letter is a very important part of anyone's offer on a property. And so it's really important to understand what you have in your hands when you think you're ready to go to purchase a home. Um, so what, Bob, are some of the common reasons for being denied a loan, besides obviously perhaps not having enough money, but there must be other reasons as well. Can you yeah. explain that? I, I would say probably the main the main ones, um, if we had to kind of look at, say, the top five statistically, um, would be uh, insufficient income, uh, would be one. So what does that really mean? Uh, without getting super technical here, generally speaking, lenders, when they're evaluating what you can afford, um, if you're a salaried person, um, and we'll keep it simple now to begin with, they want to make sure that generally speaking, all your payments that you have on a monthly basis for the mortgage and including auto loan payments, student loans, credit cards, anything of that nature, they, it's not more than 45% of your gross income on a monthly basis. So in areas like ours where um, incomes are solid, but prices are even more solid, um, it's not unusual to see people try to go to 50, 55, 60% mm -hmm. of their uh, of their income. And so that, that, that knocks them out. So is that rule that you're explaining, is that industry-wide mm -hmm. or could there be, in a, could they find a loan from some lender elsewhere that bends that rule? Yeah, gosh, that's an interesting question because it 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 is after the financial crisis, more or less, started to resolve itself in 2011-12. Um, a, a fairly large piece of legislation from two senators, uh, so nationwide then is where this comes from. Christopher Dodd and uh, Barney Frank passed the Dodd Frank legislation. Mm, right. It's about 1,800 pages. Um, I've read it, all of it. <laughs> It's fascinating. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, as usual, there were a lot of problems in the lending industry. Mm -hmm. And um, it was determined that, you know, more or less there was a new sheriff in town. And those rules were put in place. Um, and it's fairly strict. I mean, okay. that 45% number okay. is pretty hard and fast um, across the country to answer that question. Yeah. Um, it varies in a, several different categories. Um there's a category of loan called FHA financing, mm -hmm. where you're allowed to go pretty much to 50%, mm -hmm. for example. A uh, little more latitude there. Um, there went on the other spectrum, or if you get a jumbo loan, which in our area is anything generally over 765000 um, you've got to keep it at less than 43%. And that's pretty hard and fast. Um, so if you're, if, you're, if you're trying to deviate or go above those numbers then you're pretty much going into a category of really what we'd call private lenders. Right. Those are not necessarily hard money lenders, but anybody, if you've mm -hmm. heard that term, but it, but generally you're going to probably need a larger down payment. You're going to pay more in interest rate. And what do I mean by more? Probably at least one, one and a half, two percent or more higher. Um, so it really behooves you to try to stay okay. in that, you know, kind of less than 50 category. Okay. 
Yeah, and what were some of the other things that could possibly um, have somebody not qualify for a loan? Um, I would say next on the list then would be um, credit-related. Um, and that could be, A, it could be an insufficient credit score. Uh, and, and people are becoming more and more comfortable with what credit scoring has really only been around strongly now for about the last 12, 13 years. Mm -hmm. Before that, lenders just looked at a report and it, if it just looked like everything was paid as agreed, hmm. you're fine. Interesting. Then scoring started to become more of a, to try to get a little more of an analytical approach to evaluating people, uh, be able to use software systems to tell people whether they're approved or not. And um, so generally speaking, everybody's kind of used to it. The highest that you can get with these scoring programs is an 850. I've never seen an 850, by the way, so I don't really know wow. what it takes to get there. But I do see some 815s and 820s from time to time. But anything over 720 or so is still excellent. And um, so I would say either not being able to get to those minimum credit scores is number one, or number two, uh, people not having enough credit, insufficient sources of credit. What does that mean? If you have a 805 score you know, from Credit Karma, you think you're golden, it may not necessarily be the case if you've just got one credit card that you've paid on time for 10 years, but that's all you have. Generally speaking, you want to have at least three to four different sources of credit that you've had for a couple years or more. So if you have the combination of that and credit scores that are over 720 or 740, you're really in good shape. Okay. And then I would say the, the, maybe the only other category that's um, um, more common for loans to be declined, um, it would be people that have uh, made change, really different changes in employment. Let's say you were a salaried employee for, um, you worked for Oracle, and then suddenly you moved over to work for Salesforce and you're on 100% commission now. Mm -hmm. And you've only been doing that for six months. Mm -hmm. um, there's a different measure. You, you've got to have a longer period of time to earn things like bonuses and commissions before they can be used. And so with a lot of entrepreneurial and um uh, different kinds of income that are typical with, with our economy in the mm -hmm. Bay Area. Um, it's really important that people have their their sources of income, you know, properly analyzed, make sure that, that it meets the, the litmus test. Okay, that's interesting. Good information. Um, what can an applicant do to increase their chances of being approved? Uh, number one, I would say uh, prepare ahead of time. Um, so get connected with a good professional. Um, they will give them some, some, some good advice on how to start, um, lay out generally what is looked at, um, have their credit reviewed, not just, you know, from an online source, but actually have the actual three credit bureau, what we call a tri-merge report looked at. Um, and actually don't just rely on using mortgage calculators online or what have you, but actually um, have a lending company really evaluate, see their tax returns, see their pay stubs, see their W-2s, um, evaluate how long they've been with that employer, um, or if they've been self-employed and been on their own, let's say, have uh, the, the history of their income evaluated so that they get the opinion that comes back and says, yes, you've got this amount of income that can be used. Now you have something measurable to work on. But if you just plug in on a mortgage calculator that you make 10000 a month because you're doing you know, 11000 a month in commissions, it may not be mm -hmm. the 10000 a month that a lender really uses. 
right? Because a lot of people that are self-employed business owners take advantage of tax deductions. Why wouldn't you? They're there for, or for a reason to reduce your taxable income. And so tax returns are very important if you're self-employed, right? You have to actually add back in things like depreciation and things of that nature to get to Correct. your true income. Yeah, yeah, good point, Pete. And they, uh, they'll use other deductions, such as home office, especially this day and age now with more people working remotely, yeah. with what's going on uh, during the pandemic. You've got more people that are going to use a home office deduction, which they're allowed to do, but lenders deduct that now from the income that's being used. So uh, that kind of category. And it also could be for people like police officers, firemen, um, dip, uh, nurses, people that have uniforms, they'll deduct the, the expense of their, of their uniforms or their work-related attire. And um, that can have a, a significant impact on, on the income that's used as well. So it just you don't want to just, bottom line, you, know, you want to have a professional evaluate it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the challenges you might have is that people, when they start shopping for a loan, they typically will shop online. And they're driven by getting the best interest rate, right? Who wouldn't? Um, and so what I've learned about that is, is that it's really what the bank is not telling you about what the interest rate really is, right? There's a, a lot to the interest rate that you're going to get as a specific borrower based on a lot of factors that you've just touched upon. Um, credit score would be one of them. Down payment amount, the loan type, the loan amount. Don't all of those things actually factor into the rate you actually get as opposed to the advertised rate? Um, indeed. they um, it, it Really, on average, there are about eight or nine different factors that, that all influence what the ultimate interest rate is going to be that somebody obtains. You hit on some of the important ones, Pete. So size of down payment, credit score, type of loan itself. Some people, some people see, they'll see, wow, I just saw a 1.99% interest rate you know, advertised. Are they really that low? Well, you know, did you know it? Was it a was it a 15 year? Was it a 30 year? Was it an adjustable rate mortgage? I mean, you know, well, I don't really know. I just know, you right. know what I saw. Um, the other component that's often misplayed because lenders, you know, they know how to try to market and their whole goal really is to try to get people to either email them or call them. They're trying to right. draw, draw the business in. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, so they understand that people don't always know what points are, um, which is essentially the kind of price tag of the interest rate. An example of that, if you pay one point to get a really good interest rate and you borrow $500,000, that's $5,000, 1% of $500,000 added on to your overall closing cost. Sure, that's going to get a better interest rate, but it, you don't really know what's involved with that sometimes when you're looking at a interest rate that's advertised. So let's talk about points. So you just said that a point is actually 1% of the amount that you're borrowing. So you're borrowing 500000 That's a $5,000 cost for that point. Yeah. <clears throat> so I've seen loans advertised at a specific rate that say no points. But when you get the actual cost list, which they're required to do, right? Aren't there mm -hmm. federal laws mm -hmm. around disclosure about mm -hmm. what the cost of the money is? At some point, the consumer sees that. It, it, in fact, the way uh, the disclosures laws have changed over time after the financial crisis is it used to be you had like a week to, to get disclosures like that to the borrower. Now, um, it has to be to them within basically within 48 hours of when they apply for a loan. Okay. So the way this plays out is you... 
you take the bait, if you will. You see this great interest rate, no points. It's the best loan you could find shopping around. You fill out the application. And then two days later, you get the cost, the disclosure that's required. Right. And, and what you see are about $4,500 in these really official sounding fees, like <laughs> admin fee or you know window washing fee. I don't know, make, up, make something up. <laughs> but coincidentally, you add up all of those little pieces of fees, and it's about a point. Uh, so, I mean, is, is that to me just seems like packaging the money so that you draw them in. And then after they've applied, they see all of these costs and they sound official. And I, I've had clients not even question it to actually put a calculator to it and figure out that those are what we call garbage fees. That right. it's just their way of packaging a point, but they're slicing it up into different sounding important pieces. Yeah, that that. Um, what you're describing, that document, by the way, is called, the industry calls it an LE. It stands for a loan estimate. And that's the official document required by federal law to get to borrowers. So it is good to get a loan estimate um, up front so you can really see how things are broken down. Uh, generally, by the way, a good general rule when you're just starting from scratch is when you hear this term closing costs, you know, what should you kind of be thinking about? It's a pretty good rule to say about 2% of your purchase price unless you're putting, you know, 50% down or something. But if you're going to buy a $500,000 home and put, you know, 10% down, then on average, you're going to have about $10,000 in total closing costs. And that includes a lot of different categories. And mm -hmm. um, But what it doesn't generally include is extra points. So to right. your point, if if they're not really seeing the whole picture and then that interest rate somebody's advertising really is it means you've got to pay one point to do that. Well, that 10000 I just talked about just turned into 15000 Right. Mm -hmm. You didn't budget for that. Right. And those are the, the nasty surprises people get sometimes. Yeah. So then if you're really going to shop properly, you have to get to the point of that disclosure, that loan estimate. Is that what it is? Right. Okay. So loan then estimate. once you get that on the table, then you know what you really have. And then you mm -hmm. go out and compare another loan or two using those to match to see how the number what the numbers really are right you can do that I think it also is helpful if if, if you you start to work with somebody that you really trust um, to begin with yeah um, that works for a reputable company too right uh, you know not to knock really small companies because there's many good ones but um, you know these days there are a lot of good social surveys and rating services like Yelp and, and others that can give you a good idea of what you know where people are you hear the name bob casper and you're like well i don't know anything about bob except for what the realtor told me let's say or what my financial planner said um what else do i use to try to evaluate that well there you know there are other ways to look up what people are but i still think it it can be a pretty big waste of time in all honesty to start going on a big shopping spree and trying to compare five different lenders closing costs online especially and online because especially. you're not getting the full picture until you get to the application and that loan disclosure that's really where you know, all the numbers come up, right? Yeah. So, but, but if you go, you know, if you put, you know, if you've got pretty darn good ratings, let's say, you know, and feedback on a person, either through your relatives or your financial, you know, service people you're respecting, like your real estate agent, um, then go with that person to, to, to evaluate um, your situation best and just be honest with you about what are normal costs. Because you're right, you use the term garbage fees. Yeah. You know, Pete, but... It, there are a lot of miscellaneous things that are just legitimate costs. It's, oh yeah, it's, right. It's, it's it's legitimate to have to have processing done, to have underwriting done, to have an appraisal done, for mm -hmm. example. 
And, and um, so there are a lot of those things. They generally add up to somewhere between two and $3,000 for most lenders. Yeah. It's when that number starts to get significantly more than that. Right. Or, you know, red flags, yeah. start paying attention to what those things ask. Just ask yeah. what they mean. Yeah. Ask if they can waive some of those fees and they'll tell you, right? If yeah. they're, so yeah. there's that, but there's also, you know, points aren't necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, Correct. there are, there are times when paying points on the loan makes sense. Like to, quote, buy down the interest rate. Can you tell folks what that means when you buy down sure. the rate? Well, to begin with, and, and, and on this one point, I don't want to claim to be a, a tax expert here, but I, I am married to a CPA, so I know a little bit about, uh, you know, and pay attention to this topic. But generally speaking, within the tax code, when you buy a home, um, when you do pay points, they are part of the deductible expenses that you have mm -hmm. um, the year you buy the house. And, uh, you know, those other deductible expenses are the generally are the interest you pay and the property taxes you pay. But for one-time fees, points can be included in there. So, translated, what does that mean? If you, you know, keep using a $500,000 house and people are going, well, where's that located? <laughs> Not around here. Um, but I'll still use, you know, $500,000 house, you know, 10% down. Um, and um, and you, you, you begin to evaluate, gee, I can get a half a percent better interest rate if I pay one point. Um, let's, let's do the analysis. A good loan officer should be able to help you do this analysis, give you an idea of how much is your payment going to go down and how much does it cost you up front to obtain that benefit. You can figure out, well, if, if I can earn that money back in maybe four or five years and I'm going to be in this place for a while, maybe it makes sense to do that. Number one, right. to your point. And then two, there's also that tax benefit I just referred to. And so if you're in a you know a little bit higher tax bracket, the combination of those two, and assuming that you do have that money, because with a lot of protects, you know, mm -hmm. first-time home buyers or people who are just getting started, they don't always have the money up right. front, right? Right. But if you do, um, or you're getting a gift from relatives or something like that, it's worth evaluating to see if it makes sense. Can I add one other thing that just the other component we talked about things that affect interest rates. The other one that's really big is just timing. And what does that mean? Well, even if you did go out and get estimates from three different lenders, let's say, and one was on a Monday and another one was on a Wednesday and another was on a Friday, you could have three different, completely different numbers, not necessarily because their rates are that different, but because the market's changed right. in between. Because mm -hmm. rates do change like yeah. stock prices do. Well, before we talk about locking the interest rate, which yeah. is, you know, there are pros and cons to that. <clears throat> what I wanted to say about points and closing costs is that there is another source to help a buyer with those closing costs, and that's the seller. Sometimes, depending on market conditions, if it's not an overheated, white-hot seller's market, if it's more balanced or a buyer's market, it's very common for the buyer to ask for a credit from the seller to help cover their closing costs. And it's my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but most lenders across the board will allow up to 3% of the purchase price to be applied towards closing cost as a credit from the seller, as an example. Is that pretty much the case that still? Is, that is gener generally, it can be even a little bit higher than that in some cases. Some government loans allow 6%, but 3 is a good okay. number to use, 3%. So let's illustrate a scenario. So $500,000 price, um, closing cost, credit, maximum, say, 3% of that's $15,000. Mm -hmm. And so you're looking at, without paying points on the loan, you're looking at like $7,000 for your closing cost. Um, but if you pay that extra point, 
that's going to drop your rate down by a half. And if you're going to live in the house for 10 years, you're going to save a lot of money in interest. So going to the seller and asking for a credit for closing costs, that just means that's you don't have to bring that your own money to the closing to finish the sale. You're getting it from the seller. It's a concession. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good point too. And and the other thing that's interesting, we'll see if it changes with time. But the IRS even ruled several years ago that even though you do get a seller credit for uh, those costs, if you pay points, you still get the deduction. For that's right. Mm-hmm. That is right. I forgot you, about that. You're still paying for them. So that was tested in the courts. And and again, it could change. But for right now. You can mm-hmm. get a little bit of the best of both worlds. I like that. It's well, not that's... very often you get that from the IRS, right? <laughs> no. That's a lot of good information, and it really proves that, you know, you really need to have a lender that you trust and who knows all these little details and ins and outs and pros and cons and rules. But because that's super important because I think a lot of borrowers mm-hmm. tend to shop for loans online thinking, why do I need a loan right. officer for to help me? And they just think they can do it all and... They're really missing out on a, a really great opportunity to have proper counsel and guidance for all the options, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's so many things to think about, and unless you're getting professional information and good advice, um, you're losing out. So, it's really the lender part of the home buying process is really important. We always, we always emphasize that. Can we talk about rate locks for a second? You bet. How those work? You bet. Because you just mentioned a minute ago that interest rates are a moving target, and as time progresses, rates go up, down, or stay go sideways. Um, and so what's the advantage for locking in a loan rate as a buyer? Well, start with that one to begin with. What's the advantage? I'd say when you're buying a home, um, I would say, particularly in this kind of market we're in now, where your average close of escrow is not long, right? There's not too many 45-day escrows that oh, are 30, being accepted, right? 30, so 30 on the average, yeah. So if you take a 30-day window of time and you're qualified for a mortgage um, of, you know, we'll use 500000 <laughs> again, example, uh, and it's and those lenders they base it on a certain interest rate. They don't they don't maybe necessarily use the exact best interest rate they can get that day, but they maybe add half a percent to it because they can fluctuate. So you want to make sure you're you're not you know kind of bumped out of the water if, if rates go up. Well, you, you've got this limited window of time uh, to buy the house. One of the big advantages of locking as soon as you can, which is usually the day after you go into contract on the house. By the okay. way, most lenders allow you to do that. Sometimes even the same day. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one of the advantages is knowing what you can get. I mean, right, if you can, right now, if you can get a 2.875% interest rate, um, there's a pretty strong argument to be made to, to secure that. Um, uh, even though, of course, one of the risks is people ask, well, what happens if it goes lower? And that's another little topic yeah. here. But it, it just knowing what you can get and not wondering gee, on day 25, right at the end of the process, I decided to wait as long as I could, and now rates are three and a quarter. Not only is it you know, not super pleasant to have a payment that's higher than you thought, but it's also, it could affect your qualifications. Right, you could actually be um, out of the market yeah. and not be able to get the money that you need to buy the house you're in contract to buy because you entered into a time of high volatility in the mortgage market, and it went from 3% to 35 in three weeks, and now what? And some people think, oh, well, that could never happen. Well, I think it's happened a couple of times this year, hasn't it? It has. I mean, this has been a very unusual, volatile year for all reasons, especially in the financial and, and mortgage markets. So, and, and it wouldn't surprise me 
if we see just because we've been, you know, 36 years of doing this, seen a lot of cycles in interest rates, but um, this one's probably one of the more unusual. Of course, we've never had a pandemic like this, and, and that's been one of the major influences on interest rates coming down. But at some point, as most of us know, you know, this too will will get to a point where, where you know, where we have, you know, mm-hmm. vaccines, hopefully plural, or at least, you know, people get healthier, uh, whether that's six months or a year or two years, whatever. You know, we, just, we don't know that. But we do know is that when that happens, the prospects for economic improvement will grow more and interest rates are likely to move up from where they are. So in other words, it it could when you're at historic lows like you are right now, it could make a lot of sense just to maybe, you know, not get too greedy with right. what you think rates are going to do, right. even just from that standpoint, and just and take advantage of the time frame, and then maybe even sleep a little easier while you're in escrow, not wondering if you know things are going to change day to day. Is know? there a cost to lock in the rate, or what happens if the rate lock expires and you're still in escrow? What what do you hmm. do? Yeah, two two different good questions. So, to begin with, um, is there a cost to lock? Um, generally, not if it's a thirty day timeline. Okay. That's, so that's considered standard. a standard so lock. So it's free, essentially. Yeah, for built days. into the price, shall yeah. we say. Um, and then it's when you go longer than that, when you do begin to pay a premium. You know How much? Well, to go to 45 days, it probably costs another eighth of a point on the point cost. So what does that translate to on a 500000 That's probably five or $600 yeah. to, to mm-hmm. go longer, 45 mm-hmm. days. To go to 60, it's double that. It's probably 1000 or $1,200 then for that size loan. To keep the... The rate locked for that entire period of time, right? Yeah, because you the so, lender's basically saying is we're gonna right, we're gonna guarantee. guarantee that that rate is still there, um, and there's a lot of technical things going on behind the scenes that secure that. They're mm-hmm. basically going out and buying a commitment for that loan right. ahead of time. Um, but also the second thing that I was alluding to is or that you're getting to is um, not only is it just you know a cost associated with it, but it um, you've got the most lenders, not all, but most lenders have some kind of a float down capability. What does that mean? If you lock the interest rate in initially, and then by the time the loan's approved, which is usually about half to two thirds of the way through the process, um, the general rule is if they're more than an eighth of a percent better than where you were when you locked, they'll give you the benefit of that. Hmm. Um, Sometimes it needs to be negotiated. Sometimes it's automatic. There's some variation, but the main thing is it's one good thing to ask your loan professional to begin with. What What is the lock, you know, yeah. s- strategy or, or rules for your organization? Is there ever a reason to float and not lock in the interest rate after your offer has been accepted? Can't think of too many of them. Okay. Um, I think there have been a couple instances, but I have to go back a ways. The day, the day that... Uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait and rates went up three quarters of a percent in two days. Oh. I remember telling people I would float right now because okay. it just it was obvious that things were going to settle down a little bit mm-hmm. after that happened. But those are unusual circumstances, right? You know, right. Thankfully, um, so I'd say in most cases, it's a pretty good idea to to know what you're going to get, mm-hmm. um, especially when you've got some downward potential. So that's you know when you that's about the closest you can get to having your cake and eat it too. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other way, you have no protection at all. Got it. Okay. You're just taking risk, pure risk. Mm-hmm. Right. All right. So, Pete, uh, what do you tell your clients? Is there anything else besides the pre-approval letter? What other important things do our clients need to think about when they 
put together an offer with a pre-approval letter? Well, I'm looking at what should be on that pre-approval letter. In other words, if I'm representing the seller and I receive an offer, usually I get a pre-approval letter with the offer. That's pretty standard protocol, at least in our marketplace. So what I'm looking for, we talked earlier today about what are the telltale signs in a pre-approval letter that it's really a pre-qualification and not a pre-approval. So I'm looking for things that you look that you mentioned. I'm looking for things that have been verified. Income, assets, employment, credit, source of down payment. Those are some of the key things I want to see in writing in that letter. If it says that it has a date, an expiration date, that's usually a good sign. Not all of them do, and they're still pre-approval letters. Some do, some don't. Um, there's also a strategy in the pre-approval letter. Um, a common practice, let me say this, a common practice with a pre-approval letter is that the offer comes in at 500 and the borrower needs 400. So the offer letter or the pre-approval letter says, you know, they're good to buy a house to 500,000 and borrow 400,000. And so that's in there. Well, that's all well and good. I want to know that as a listing agent representing the seller. But what happens if there's another offer on the table and it's 520,000. But we like this offer, the, the, the way this offer is structured better than the one at 520. We want to focus on that, that, that buyer. Well, I have no idea if the borrower is good enough to go to that price point. So sometimes it's better to leave the price off the letter and just focus on the maximum loan amount that the borrower is qualified to, per, to borrow. So in other words, let's say that you have somebody that's very conservative and they can they can borrow up to 700000 but they only need 400000 Wouldn't it be great to have that letter say you can borrow up to 700000 to buy a house and just leave the price off? Because really, if you've got the down payment, everything's been verified. What that tells me as a seller that the, we're dealing with somebody that's not stretching to buy the house, that they're actually overqualified to buy the home. And the pre-approval letter, in my opinion, should be something that builds confidence with the seller and the listing agent that if you accept this offer, the odds of it falling apart over my ability to obtain financing are zero, essentially. Right. Yeah. So right. that's what that would be a good strategy. Can I just add one thing? Yeah. The only thing that to be careful with, because I agree with that strategy. But there are some lending institutions, primarily banks, that require the purchase price to be put on there. Right. Yeah, so then I've you can't kind of get around it. Hmm. But um, um, then maybe the best solution is at least just then tell me the maximum they can go to. Right. Even if it's higher than what I'm offering, because then at least you're not mm -hmm. going to get tossed out of the pile. Right. Because well, it doesn't look like you're good enough. Well, yeah. right. And some some buyers believe, well, if I do that, then I'm tipping my hand and the seller knows that I can pay 800000 for their $500,000 house. And yeah, that doesn't mean that you will, though. And I've never had a buyer ever in 35 years pay more than what they were willing to pay for something. They just won't. They're, they have their own preset maximums and that's as high as they want to pay. Mm -hmm. If they can't get it for that price, they'll go buy another house. So. Yeah. I think it's more important, especially in a competitive situation, to really build confidence with the seller and their agent that you're overqualified, that you're not stretching to get this house. And it also inspires the seller to come back with a counterproposal. If they're negotiating to sell that house, then they know that if they come back at a higher price with a counteroffer, that you have the ability to buy that house at that higher price. Without mm -hmm. that, all they know is what you can buy based on the original offer.
Okay. So one la last question on um, offers. Um, Pete, how do you structure your client's offer to be more competitive in a hot seller's market? What are some things that you advise buyers to consider? Well, I recommend that you verify and provide verification of the source of your down payment. So along with the offer and the pre-approval letter, it's best practice to bring with you and attach proof of down payment. Where is the money coming from? You say you have $100,000 to put down, but show me the money, basically, because I want to know as a seller and a listing agent, do you need to sell anything? To get to the hundred thousand, like another house, or a boat, or whatever it is, liquidate stock, or, or is part of that money coming from a gift from a relative? I want to know that too, because it's not that gifts are a negative, but you need to have confirmation that the gift, the grantor of the gift, is actually going to do that, right? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. there's something called a gift letter. Bob, why don't you tell us about how gift letters work? Yeah, that <clears throat> gift letter. Uh, Although they, every once in a while you'll see people maybe handwrite or type out the intent of the gift or let's say it's your, you know, your grandmother that's, you know, willing to, to, uh, to give some money towards the purchase of the house and they, they have the way they want to write it out and say what their intentions are. Well, lenders have requirements for what the, the letter needs to state. And so because of that, they generally have their own template put together. That where you 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 know you can just use that template, send it on to that that gift or, and this what, what what's in the general template? It's basically you're stating that you intend to have this you know be a gift. It does not need to be repaid. It's not a loan. Um, that it's to be used for the purchase of a house. It doesn't have to specifically say you know the address of that particular house because that can change, of course. But um, the basics are that it's not a loan and that it's to be used towards a house. And then they, you list the account number that the um, account that it's going to come out of. And then that matches up with Pete, what you were referring to, which is if you, then if you show a copy of the, the, the statement, that gift or needs mm. to also show proof to a lender that they have the ability to give that gift. So you could mm. use even page one, you know, let's say, of a statement that says that they're going to give you 50000 They've got at least 50000 in that account. And then you just want to make sure that the money does come from that account right. know, when it comes time. Yeah, because essentially the gift is a third wheel to the transaction. Without the gift, there's a gap and you can't close the mm -hmm. sale. Mm -hmm. So it's a great thing to have somebody say to you, yeah, I'll give you the money once you find the house. But the listing agent and the seller wants to know that that is actually cast in stone, that it's a sure bet, not just a maybe. Mm -hmm. um, so verification of down payment in the form of copies of bank statements, and they should be current, like in the last 30 days. And you can redact account numbers for privacy and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. But at least give some idea about where the money's coming from. Once in a while, I'll get an offer that says it's not contingent on selling another home. And there's no verification of down payment with the offer. <laughs> and so when you start asking questions, well, where's the money coming from? Well, we've got this house that we need to sell. And once it closes, we'll have the 100000 so even though there's no contingency in the offer, that doesn't mean it isn't contingent upon that house selling because it really is. It's a de facto contingency. And if that house doesn't sell and close, there's no money to close this one. So that's one of the reasons why attaching that to your offer is really critical. The other thing that's important, especially in a competing hot market for sellers markets, is to 
have short time frames for contingencies. And the three big contingencies in must purchase offers are inspection contingencies, financing contingency, and usually related that is an appraisal contingency. So in this current environment with processing loans and getting things approved, what would you say is an average time frame that's very doable for a loan approval contingency? Well, I would, if they've been fully underwritten ahead of time, um, which is that point it was kind of getting to earlier, which is the dip, you know, if you just get pre-qualified, then you really should ask for more time than this. Right. But if you're fully underwritten and really pre-approved, um, those time frames have gotten a little longer lately, I would say, with the demands of our marketplace lately, it's kind of like we had a little bit of a delayed spring almost, you know, it felt like, right? right. Obviously, shelter in place and other things that, that kind of pushed back the beginning of the market. People couldn't even really see homes for a while, um, yeah. couldn't show things the, the way we were used to. Um, and once that really got started, now we're almost really at a kind of almost a peak lending environment right now. So I would say a, a safe Safe number really should be 17 days. Um, mm -hmm. When you're competing, there are ways to try to get that done shorter, like say maybe in 12 to 14 days. Okay. Um, but uh, it's, I would say most lenders you want to kind of count on 17 days because that's going to include needing, you know, the appraisal and, and the other steps taken care of as well. Right, right. So that's kind of the minimum time frame to realistically go through underwriting. It gets back to... The benefit of being pre-approved versus pre-qualified. When it comes time to write the offer, if you've covered all that ground up front, you can have shorter time frames. Having shorter time frames makes your offer more attractive to the seller, makes you more competitive. It increases your odds of getting your offer accepted. Um, what about eliminating the loan contingency altogether and having a buyer be confident in their ability to do that and know that they can get that loan even without the contingency of loan approval? Yeah. Well, certainly it is, um, can be a, a, a very big selling point um, at that point for a seller to you know look at a situation and say, okay, they're gonna borrow money, but they're not making this contract contingent on obtaining that, that shows a lot of confidence, right? That not only mm -hmm. they've been underwritten, but they know they can obtain this. this and financing. they're putting their deposit at risk if they don't get exactly. the loan. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Uh, there, there's definitely a risk for, for them not to have that happen. So another reason it's important to be fully underwritten ahead of time, and, and fully underwritten really means all your, your financial data, credit history, and everything has been looked at. If you get pre-approved, you know, and more than 60 or 90 days go by, before then, then you really want to have that redone again to make sure everything's updated. Um, it, I'd say the only risks that you just want to be cautious with, make sure and ask the lender, you know, things like um, have any guidelines changed or any, any changes in rules since we got pre-approved, let's say 60 days ago or six months ago or what have you. Um, and then it really kind of comes down to confidence in yourself, you know, because the lender can say you're fully approved, but if you don't, you don't still have your job, you know, when it comes time to close, um, you know, it's going right. to be pretty tough to get that financing. Yeah. Um, if you switch jobs and you did, you know, you did something really different, that could be something that could have an impact. Or go out and buy some big ticket item in the middle of the escrow, right? A new car, right. a boat, whatever it is. Exactly. Right. You know, new debt. So 
and you can see built into this is you can, it's really important to have a lot of trust and communication in the process. You know, if I were to go out and, you know, and do this, if I'm going to co-sign for my brother and on a loan, I'm not making the payments. What does it matter? Mm, actually, it does matter. You know, so it's really good to talk to your loan officer about, you know, what you're thinking about, what's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times when people get excited about their house, they start thinking about mm-hmm. getting cabinets or window treatments or mm-hmm. furniture. And, and they don't, even though it's maybe zero interest for to buy something, they don't think it affects them. It actually does. So right. it's good to communicate that, get some counsel on whether that's advisable, you know, or yeah. not to think about that. Um, but I'd say in, in general, the, the, the main thing to realize when you're waiving your contingencies, you know, yourself saying, I'm going to not have that requirement on a contract. You're just putting a lot of confidence in the fact that your down payment monies are going to be there when, when you're going to close and you're still going to be gainfully employed. And right. as long as you feel real comfortable with those, then, yeah. I, then I don't think it's a huge risk. To take. And you've been completely pre-approved as opposed to pre-qualified. Correct. Because pre-qualified means that there's all kinds of surprises that might come up in the process that you haven't gone through yet. Whereas pre-approval, you've basically covered all that ground and the surprises aren't there to be enjoyed or discovered. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'm going to add one point just as long as we're you know, just having a dialogue about this, that when you asked earlier, Alyssa, because I'm going to circle back to that uh, reasons why people's loans get denied, mm-hmm. not too far down the list that ties into uh, verifying things ahead of time are what lenders call reserves, which is the amount of money that you need to have left over after you've paid your down payment and your payment. So um, kind of makes sense a little bit, right? I think most yeah. of us like to think that when we buy anything, we still have maybe <laughs> a month or two left right. over uh, just in case anything you know unanticipated happens. Well, for certain price ranges, you can you can need as much as 12 months worth of your payments on the mortgage and the taxes and everything else separate. And right. it can be a retirement account, 401k, 401k account, um, you know, certainly uh, any kind of a uh, liquid account that's non-retirement can be used too. But it's it's important to know what those requirements are too ahead of time, um, and take that into account. So, for instance, you've got a 401k. And you feel like you're fine with reserves, but it's really close and the stock market drops 10 mm-hmm. or 15 percent, that might change right. your lending capabilities. So right. just, again, another reason why it's important to get fully underwritten ahead of time and then communicate changes to your loan officer. Good point. That's great. OK. Um, let's talk a little bit about different types of loans that are out there. Um, conventional versus FHA and VA home loans. Bob, can you talk about the differences between these loans? Yeah, sure. Okay, so let's start with conventional, that term conventional first. That is the term used to describe um, loans that fit into um, the category of the two bigger institutions in the country that were originally chartered way back in the 1950s to kind of help provide liquidity to the marketplace, uh, help, help basically allow for people to put smaller down payments down, for example, um, for interest rates to get a little bit better. So people may be familiar with the terms um, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac used. Fannie Mae stands for the Federal National Mortgage Association. Freddie Mac stands for, uh, uh, Mac stands for the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation. And both essentially are quasi-government entities that, um, that more or less back and insure these mortgages. In our area, that happens to be anything up to 510000 
um, for one level, and then there's a, an augment to that called the high balance level up to 765,000. Again, in, in the five main Barrier counties, um, outside, if you get start to get outside, you know, to a place like Benicia or, or to Tracy or, you know, to, uh, you know, Petaluma or Santa Rosa, it can be very different. So you want to be cautious and know those limits, but say that generally in our area, 765,000 or less, that's considered a conventional loan. And that's here in the San Francisco Bay Area, one of the highest cost real estate markets in the country. We have some listeners that are in Iowa, as an example. So those limits are going to be where? Where would they? It almost uh, certainly, uh, the, the national level for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is 510,000. That's okay. consistent for every state in the country. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. But high cost markets like these coastal markets, as an example, they're allowed to go higher because the the value of real estate is so much higher. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Then that category, yes. So FHA stands for Federal Housing Authority. That was that program was put into place essentially to allow uh, to be um, a first time home buyer uh, type program. It's yeah. actually not exclude. You, you can be a second time home buyer and still get an FHA loan. But it, the main advantages to FHA are the ability to um, put the smallest down payment possible. Three and a half percent nationwide, up to five hundred and ten thousand. Um, you also have a few other things that are more helpful, flexible. You know, you can get a gift from a friend actually, and still get an FHA loan. You can't do that with a conventional mm-hmm. loan. Um, but you're um, you're still required um, to pay mortgage insurance, private mortgage insurance, which is the premium paid to um, to the lenders for putting less than twenty percent down for the additional risk being taken. Mm-hmm. On the loan, so FHA has a little bit higher private mortgage insurance number, and those are all factored in to your qualifications. So that payment, whatever that payment's going to be on that mortgage insurance premium, those lenders are using that to figure out how much you can afford. And then there's the VA. And then VA is is a specific benefit for veterans. Probably the most advantageous program for veterans that um, have what what are called the the proper entitlement. Usually it means you've had to have served for a certain minimum period of time with an honorable discharge, or if if you've been disabled, then there's even some more advantage. But essentially, again, same limits nationwide, 510,000. You can uh, actually finance 100% Mm -hmm. as a veteran, Put, put zero down. Now in the Bay Area, can they go higher than the 510? They can. Um, and then there's a um, up to seven hundred sixty-five thousand is 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 you can finance one hundred percent. As you go above that, there's a formula they use, um, which is still better than conventional loans. Mm-hmm. So let's say you buy a million-dollar house, you're probably going to have to put about six or seven percent down mm. instead of zero. But it's you know not as advantageous as zero down, but a lot better than getting uh, a conventional loan. Right. Okay. Right. So, Pete, is it true that a buyer making an offer with a VHA or VA loan is handicapped compared to a buyer with a conventional loan? Does it make a difference for when they're out making offers? It can. It depends on the marketplace. There are markets throughout our country where VA loans and FHA loans are common. And in that case, you're not handicapped because it's it's the norm. Um, there's as many of those loans made in those markets as conventional loans in many cases. There are military towns that do a lot of VA financing because of the uh, military folks that are buying homes in those areas, so they're common. But in some markets, like the Bay Area, they're very uncommon. Um, 
part of it's due to the limitations because of the high cost of real estate here. The maximums for some of these loans exceed or, or don't go high enough to be able to buy. But the problem with FHA and VA loans can be that not only does the borrower have to qualify for the loan, but in some cases there are conditions about the property that might preclude the loan from being approved, right? And I know that those have relaxed somewhat over the years recently. They used to be far more stringent than they are now, but they're still there. So FHA has some examples of that where things like peeling paint on the outside of the house could be a disqualifier. And uh, unless this has changed, the appraiser that goes out to do the appraisal report has an overlay for these loans. And it's like a checklist that they have to fill out for an FHA loan to see if the property condition is aligned with their underwriting guidelines. So peeling paint, health and safety issues, broken hand railing, you know, lifted concrete patios, things like that, wiring that's exposed, all of those things are going to be noted on the report, whereas in some cases, conventional appraisal reports won't note those things and they're not factored in as a requirement by the underwriter. Structural defects is another one that could be a problem with any loan, conventional or FHA, but certainly FHA and, and VA loans. So being handicapped means that in some cases you can get the loan, but the bank is going, or FHA is going to require that the seller complete the repairs prior to closing, right? Is that still true that they it won't is. allow the buyer to make these repairs? So what happens if you have an offer that's been accepted and it's as is? I don't know of any seller out there that doesn't want to sell their home as is so they don't have to fix anything. <laughs> Everybody hopes that that's the offer that they get and the sale that they get. So now you're in the middle of a sale and the bank is telling the buyer and the seller, this is how it's going to go. If you want the money, fix the paint, fix the railing, fix the wiring. And by the way, the borrower can't do it, the buyer can't do it, the seller has to do it. So that forces both parties to have to re-engineer the sale terms and nobody likes to do that. So that's where the handicap is created. And as a listing agent, if you have a choice between accepting an offer that's conventional or FHA or VA with these surprises that might come about, you're probably going to gravitate towards the conventional buyer because there's less uncertainty about what's going to come up during the middle of the transaction through appraisal and loan approval. So it can be harder for a, a buyer using FHA or VA to get their offer accepted, especially in markets where most of the loans made are conventional and listing agents don't have a grasp on the loans themselves. So they, if, because they're unfamiliar with them, they just dismiss them out of hand and guide the seller towards going a different direction. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Bob, is there anything in particular a buyer should look for in a condo complex when they're purchasing using an FHA or VA loan? Are there, mm. are there certain requirements for that? There are. Uh, so specifically for FHA and VA, each of those, and they are run separately, different governmental mm -hmm. agencies that run them, uh, the requirement for a condominium is that uh, they've had a advanced list that they've evaluated those um, associations already to determine if they meet their requirements. So it's otherwise called an FHA approval list, let's say for FHA. Mm -hmm. VA has their same similar mm -hmm. list 
And so if you're not already on that list, if it's Greenwood condominiums, you know, in a certain town, and it's not on that list, you can't obtain an FHA or a VA loan for that. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't be added to the list, mm -hmm. but it usually means there's quite a bit of work involved and that is probably not going to be a real short close of escrow. So uh, so that's called a spot approval? Is that what you're talking about? It is. So if it's not already on the approved list, then you can get a kind of a one-off or one of the spot approvals, what they're commonly known as? That's what they're commonly known. And they, um, they require the really the complete cooperation of the homeowners association. That's an oxymoron. Let's <laughs> <laughs> say not easy to do. No. And I think sellers know that too. Okay. So probably want to be a little careful, right? Like thinking I can always obtain a spot approval because you don't know if you're going to really be getting right. all the help that you need mm -hmm. um, to obtain that. But it is, but it is doable. And in, and in markets where longer closes of escrow are more normal, mm -hmm. you know, or customary, you know, uh, maybe or, not as hard to get it done. Or a softer market where that's the mm -hmm. only buyer. And so you're going to work with that buyer to get that deal done because that's the only buyer out there. Yeah. Right. So exactly. what about mortgage insurance? And when is that, when does it apply? Okay. If so, almost across the board, it's, it's when the buyer is putting less than 20% down. So whether it's conventional, FHA, whether it's conventional or, VA. FHA or VA. Okay. Um, FHA, is different in the sense that uh, regardless of the down payment, you have to have mortgage insurance. So everybody pays into the pool. Okay. Um, so there's a specific reason then, you know, if you are putting 20% down, you're going to almost never get an FHA loan unless you have other requirements. What are some of those? You know? um, lower credit scores. If FHA, even though they've raised it a little bit, you can probably go as low as about 580 or 600 in credit score. So they're more forgiving. More forgiving. Okay. More flexible. VA, similar. A little bit more flexibility there. VA does not have a monthly private mortgage insurance. They have what's called a funding fee. It's a one-time fee that's paid that can range anywhere from one and a half up to three and a quarter percent. Um, and you can finance it. It can be built into the loan. Okay. It's generally determined based on length of service, and uh, whether you had a disability or not um, as, as a veteran. Okay. So what we're talking about is an insurance policy for the benefit of the lender making the loan. And, and they're insuring, what, the portion of the loan that is above the loan amount? Is it's, that how it it's, works? It's essentially a, all those premiums go into a pool, for yeah. lack of a better way to describe you know, more detailed way to describe it. And that pool, so... If, if 100 loans are done, you know, in any market around the country, statistically, 3 or 4% of those people are not going to be able to make their payments within a year or two years. Um, so what happens when that happens? The lenders have to take those back, uh, foreclose on them perhaps, or at least take losses potentially on them because they're not receiving the payments. And so that those losses are offset by the premiums that come in um, from the mortgage insurance. Okay. So mortgage insurance is not necessarily a bad thing. It could make the difference of you getting the loan at all, or it enables you to put down less than 20%. And the trade-off is your monthly payment is slightly higher to cover the monthly mortgage insurance premium, right? Correct. Or, or the funding fee, if you've built that into the finance. Correct. And if there, there is, um, I guess you can kind of look at it from the opposite perspective, which is, you know, if you go back 
35 or 40 years, other than VA loans, you really didn't have much of a capability to put less than 20% down. Right. So enter now new instruments called mortgage insurance contracts. It enabled people to, so it really made the housing market a lot more liquid, you right. know, allowing, bringing in this whole new pool of people that can suddenly buy, um, and especially in more expensive markets where it's it's not easy to to come up with 20%. Kind of like the old pay option arms you did. Right? Yeah. You brought more people into the market that probably never should have been there. But yeah. We'll save that for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, before we leave the adjustable rate mortgage thing, are fixed rate loans predominantly, most of the loans being made right now, are adjustable? Is anybody getting an adjustable rate loan anymore? Um, I would say pretty close to 90%. Are getting fixed rate mortgages either thirty or fifteen year. Okay. Right now. Right. Um, there are several things that have impacted that. Um, the regulatory side, when the Dodd Frank Act was passed, it made it a little more punitive. In other words, you know, lenders can, you know, it's going to cost them more in different ways if they're going to offer adjustable rate mortgages mm-hmm. to borrowers. Um, that combined with the fact that um, that. Rates for all these treasury securities, which I think we'll get into a little bit, have come down so low in all categories that there's not as much of an incentive to get an adjustable rate mortgage right now. It doesn't make much sense for the borrower, and it's tougher on the bank, right? If you went back, yes. If you went back maybe, say, 10 years when fixed rate mortgages were 6%, let's say, uh, for a 30-year fixed, you might have been able to get a four and a quarter percent rate for something that was fixed for seven years. Thought, wow, you know, so for some people that was a big enough incentive because oh, I might not be here anyway. Yeah, I'll, short-term hold, right? I'll people save the money. People get transferred a lot. That's a good plan. Today, that difference might only be a quarter percent. Ah. In fact, it's pretty close to that. So wow. then people say, well, gee, if I'm going to only save eighty dollars a month, why? why should I take the risk? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about mortgage interest rates. Um, Bob, how are home loan interest rates affected by the bond market? Well, the I think mainly the bond market, there are essentially two different uh, sides to the debt marketplace, as we call it, that have an impact on mortgage rates. Uh, one of them is uh, the treasury securities marketplace, or otherwise known as the, as the bond market, as we call it broadly. And that's, that's essentially all the different um, lengths of contracts that the government offers to raise money to help fund all these great things that we spend money on in this country, right? From roads to schools and, and, and beyond, military and everything else. So those range from anywhere from a low of 30-day treasury securities all the way up to 30-year securities. And then a lot of increments in between. The main, what we call the benchmark treasury security that's used that mortgage rates reflect the closest to is called the 10-year treasury. Um Traditionally, rates could be really close in percentage to where the rates are on the 10-year treasury. Well, guess where the 10-year treasury is today? Um, 0.65%, I believe, is what it closed at today. Uh, Pretty close to historic low. Um, Mortgage rates are not 0.65%, as we all know. So there's been kind of a disconnect, really, with the bond market that's occurred in the last year, mostly, and mortgage interest rates. So what's a more accurate indicator than now? Primarily, it's that second debt market that I'm referring to, which is called the MBS marketplace or mortgage-backed securities. Mm-hmm. 
That's a pool. The Federal Reserve has nothing to do with it primarily. It is a private securities marketplace, just like the New York Stock Exchange or the Chicago Board of Mercantile is or NASDAQ or any others. Um, and people buy and sell pools of mortgages on a day-to-day basis, depending on you know who buy those, you know, you know pension funds. Um, yeah. You know. So the bank will initiate the loan and then they'll sell it. They'll put it in this package, this pool, and it's sold on the secondary market to investors. And then the loan, the lender, the bank retains the rights to service the loan. Is that typically how it goes? Typical. So mm-hmm. they make money off of the servicing fees, right? Correct. Correct. But they don't want to hold those loans in their portfolio because then they have regulations to follow with reserves with the bank, and the bank requires that they have a certain amount of liquidity to stay in the business of being a bank, right? Yeah. You know a lot about this, Pete. That's good. <laughs> the, essentially, think of it really as, as the, the, secu- the security marketplace, um, the, the mortgage-backed security marketplace, adds liquidity. It, it enables lenders to, when they fund a mortgage, since they don't have to hold on to it now and they can sell it into a pool, it means they can lend it now to another person. Because otherwise, if you don't do that, you can get to a point where lenders are say, "We're out of money this week, or we're out of the money this month, or whatever. We can't lend anymore." Right. And um, and so obviously none of the you know none of our real estate markets want that. So you've got this marketplace now that buys and sells these mortgages, as you say, and 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 so lenders, of course, when they know they're going to gauge what they charge for an interest rate based on what they think they can sell it for. Um, But this all ties into underwriting guidelines, too, does it not? I mean, isn't there like a standardized playbook for underwriting guidelines so that these loans are actually saleable in the secondary market? Yes. Yes. And um, the term that I used for those institutions that back mortgages in the country, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, that set the limits, they also set the rules that the loans need to look like that are inside those limits. So all of this ties together standardized underwriting guidelines across the board pretty much with conventional financing, FHA, VA, because the goal is to resell them to the secondary market and make sure that those loans qualify. Yeah, and and if you're somebody thinking about buying, you know, at the end of the day, it behooves all of us to have um, big companies or big pension funds or whoever wanting to buy these mortgages because it actually makes our our interest rates better. Yeah. By, 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 and, and we're doing that because it's a more liquid investment. It, it's not necessarily, a, in the old days, it was a bank or a savings and loan that says, I'm, I'm going to offer you 6.5% for 30 years because they knew that's what they were going to get from the borrower for, for 30 years was right. that return, and they were going to hang on to it all that time, and it is no longer like that. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, so, Bob, our interest rates are really at an all-time historic low. Do you see any change to this trend in the foreseeable future? This is a question we obviously get a lot, which I'm sure you do, too. Crystal ball. Yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, uh, it'll be fun to have a podcast in six months to see how close yeah, I was. Yeah, huh? right. The, um, in, I, the outlook right now is probably more predictable than it usually is. And what do I mean by that? So rates are low. We're at... Gosh, I think for recorded history of financing instruments, we're, we're you know, the average 30-year conforming with somebody with a good size down payment and good credit scores and all those things we talked about earlier should be able to get sub 3%, you know, 2.8, 2.9, and even better depending on other factors like pain points and things we talked about. But let's just say you, for practical purposes, you use 3% right now. 
um, for a 30-year fixed mortgage. Um, the outlook for that right now, I would say, is um, likely to stay somewhat close to that range. And when I say somewhat, I'll, I'll, I'll add why I don't think there could, there could definitely be some variation there, but somewhat close to this. Why is that predictable? For probably two main reasons. One, that um, the growth level in the economy was definitely affected by this pandemic. Um, it's been more resilient, maybe, people would argue, than people thought. Stock market certainly is pretty healthy right now, especially if you own about five or six stocks. <laughs> Isn't it amazing what a few trillion dollars will do for the economy to stay buoyant? <laughs> it's funny how that works. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I thought I almost shook my head today when I heard somebody tell me that the the difference in what Amazon stock price did from in a three hour time span this morning um, was more than the entire value of Goldman Sachs as a company. Wow! Just that's, in three hours. That's amazing. But so. Now you've got a scenario where the outlook um, for economic growth is, is, although it's optimistic, you know, in general, I mean, there's, there's no longer this, like, I think, real, real strong fear that we might have had six months ago that we could enter a real serious recession or depression. That could change. But right now, the view has shifted a little bit more to more modest growth, um, but with a low inflationary environment. And the Federal Reserve has commented several times on how committed they are to actually keeping shorter term interest rates real low. And now they're projecting, as you probably heard, all the way out to 2024, I believe. Wow. It was just 22. Now mm -hmm. it's 24. Well, that's going to help keep rates somewhat in the lower range. And then the other one is the Federal Reserve is actually that marketplace we talked about, that mortgage-backed security marketplace, the Federal Reserve is actually, as part of all the stimulus plans, is actually allocating a certain amount of money and buying those mortgage-backed securities to keep the prices a little more stable. So you could call it a little manipulation or whatever, but it's it's an intentional strategy to, to kind of keep rates at an affordable level for, for, level for consumers. And so I think that, that really, those two things are going to keep rates probably within a somewhat... Modest range. What's a modest range? You know, half, half percent, three quarters percent or less, maybe even for a couple of years, you know, uh, right now. Mm -hmm. The only trade off to that it would be probably, you know, got an election coming up here soon. Don't know what's going to happen with that, obviously. Um, that could affect investors' appetite for mortgage bad securities, stocks, and then that could cause some shift in rates. And then the second one, which may even have a bigger impact, and that's when we get some vaccines. Because if, let's say, six months from now or eight months from now, we get to a point where, you know, two or three companies have had some successful trials, uh, I guess everybody's kind of hoping for that. Uh, who knows exactly what's going to happen? But let's say we'd be optimistic for a moment and say we get two or three companies have had successful trials. The markets are going to shift to thinking, you know, we're better off than we thought we were now. So I think you will, as a result of that, you'll probably see mortgage rates shift up a little bit. How much? Not Not 1%, but... It wouldn't be hard to get back to where we were in March, and rates have come down about three quarters of a percent since March. So you definitely want to get a pre-vaccine interest rate locked in. <laughs> that would be, <laughs> yeah, that could be a good, good new product term for some of these lenders. You know, <laughs> pre-vac. So with these current crazy low interest rates, there must be a high volume of loan refinancing that you are dealing with. Um, how is that impacting home purchase loans? I mean, we've talked a little bit about how busy you are and the, and the timing, these timelines are what they are yeah. because of the volume that you're dealing with. But what else 
I've never mentioned earlier, I've seen, I think, six distinct interest rate cycles. Clearly, rates have never been this low because we're at like a 50, you know, actually, I think we're at a closer to a 60 year low right now. Um, so that's led to that's, you know, obviously encouraged a lot of people to refinance existing mortgages if they if they can qualify for that. And it makes sense for them. Um, in a lot of cases, it is. I think statistically over 30 percent of all American mortgages are either have been or are being refinanced as we speak right now this year. Hmm. Um, that's a pretty big number. The most the lending industry has ever done in a year, I think, is a little over two trillion. Just to give you an example, mm-hmm. 2.1, 2.2 trillion. Um, we had already crossed that record in June. Wow! So this could even be close to double the number the industry's ever done. So what does that translate to? That means lenders are um, really not quite able to handle the load. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an executive of a company that. I used to work for that said this is really kind of the equivalent of trying to get the St. Bernard in through the cat door right mm-hmm. now. I mean, it's it's so what does that really mean? It means what the process that normally for pre-approval, even let's say that you might have been able to do in two days or three days before is probably going to take a solid two weeks. And with some mm-hmm. banks, it can take three to four weeks. So um, you definitely want to get an early start before you actively get out there and start house hunting and doing all that fun stuff. You need to get an early start on your loan pre-approval for what you just said. Highly advisable. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, we've run into some clients recently where they're out looking at homes, they're excited, they've got a down payment saved up, somebody told them they're pre-approved, then we discover they're really pre-qualified, but they want to buy that house like right now, and so they just want that pre-approval, they want that to morph from pre-qual to pre-approval like that, and that's just not doable. And maybe in some cases, you know, there are some companies that can move faster than others um, and maybe get a legitimate pre-approval in maybe two or three or four business days. I would say on the, that's not even close to the norm. Um, mm-hmm. And so even for our company, which I think I do believe, uh, you know, selfishly speaking, does move quickly compared to the competition, we still are trying to count on a solid five to six business days mm-hmm. at least to get a full pre-approval. Yeah. Done. And whereas if a year ago, I could probably do that in 24 hours. Right, right. I remember mm-hmm. that. That's mm-hmm. a huge difference. And and by the way, that's another. So it should be the flag. So if you've got institutions that are saying, oh, there's no doubt we can get this for you in 24 mm-hmm. hours. It probably means it's a pre-qualification. Right. And not right. A pre-qualification. Uh, another clue. That's a good one. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So not only uh, loan processing, underwriting, timeframes are impacted by all of this, but other things too, like appraisals. Getting Correct. those done, Correct. right? How about funding at the end? Yeah, that that I would say that might not be as significantly impacted. That funding side is, is appraisal, but it's, there's still I would say everything's just a little step behind um, underwriting itself. The the actual time it takes from the point at which your loans kind of all packaged together to the point at which somebody says you're fully approved, formally approved, as we say, that's probably a, a good solid double the triple what it was six months ago. So just kind of to recap, realistically, having a 30-day time frame from the point of your offer being accepted to close of escrow, that's realistic. That's doable. 21 days is probably overly optimistic based on where things are right now. I would tend to agree with that. Okay. And then on loan contingencies and appraisal contingencies, if you choose to incorporate those into your offer realistically, 
two weeks is aggressive, three weeks is really more realistic, right? I think that's a good gauge right there. So the the, the challenge is when you're in a seller's market, sellers want really short time frames on everything. If you're going to have contingencies, they want them to be short. And that's kind of a that's kind of setting everybody up to fail because that might be what they want. But when you say, okay, well, then let's make it 10. And then you get into the middle of the transaction and the lender saying, we need more time. So you're back to where you were anyway with extensions, you know, so why not just come out of the gate and craft the offer with realistic timeframes? And that gets back to being fully pre-approved. Maybe you don't even need that contingency because you're so strong and you've done all of your upfront work properly. So you don't even have to worry about that time frame. You're not even going to make that a contingency, right? So the only other one would be your appraisal contingency. And that's not a requirement. There's no law that requires a buyer to have any contingencies in the offer. Now, it may not be prudent to eliminate them based on the market and circumstances and all those things, but you don't have to have them. So you can elect not to have an appraisal contingency. You just have to be prepared that if it doesn't appraise for the agreed upon purchase price, who is going to close that gap? You have to have the will to do it and the resources, the added down payment, right? Right. There's always that possibility that depending on if an appraisal, let's say, comes in lower than the anticipated, you know, than the purchase price, that uh, it could be, it could be appealed through the lender, um, and, and possibly changed uh, back, to, especially if somebody thinks a real flawed report has been done and that appraiser maybe didn't really know that neighborhood or that area sufficiently. Um, but I'd say statistically, probably maybe not much more than probably 10 or 15 percent end up getting right, modified. Right. That's been my experience. The odds are pretty low. What, a, what about appraisals? So there was a time where when the, you know, we're back before the uh, financial crisis that appraisals were almost um, not even required in some cases, I guess I could say that. Yeah. Um, and Or they would do what's known as a drive-by appraisal, which means they drove by, they saw that there was actually a building on the lot, and then they kept on driving. <laughs> and, and so where are we with appraisal standards and guidelines now? Have, have they been relaxing those over time Gosh, recently? Or? Probably two distinct distinct swings, I would say. In, in the Dodd-Frank Act was passed in 2011. Then there were some subsequent changes in the laws over the next couple of years after that that made things get a lot tighter um, in the appraisal area and as well as other areas. But specifically for appraisals, you've, you've seen them you know, get to the point where, uh, you know, in, in, in not excluding the fact that, that institutions can no longer just, you know, make an order directly with an appraisal firm. They have to go through an intermediary company called an appraisal management company. And then that appraisal management picks blindly who the appraiser is that comes in. So that was an attempt to try to eliminate any quote unquote undue influence on the appraiser's opinion, you know, of the value, Um, which was hard because I usually did a pretty good job of finding out the favorite wine, you know, that my appraiser had. No, I'm kidding. But I used to leave a new Corvette in the driveway with the keys on the hood. And I'd just kind of stand back and see if they actually figured out what that meant. (laughs) Just teasing. Human, human nature, right? But the, the, so that came full swing and then comes the pandemic. And now partly because of restrictions where let's say appraisers weren't even allowed to go inside for the first two or three months, they weren't, they were restricted from even going, you know, inside the house. Mm -hmm. So now 
will lenders allow an evaluation of a house when you can't even see the inside? How do you even know there's a kitchen in there or the walls are not ripped apart or, you yeah. know, that there is four bedrooms and not two or whatever? That became a, a very sticky topic there for a couple months. And then, then the government got involved a little bit more. Institutions started loosening up a little bit more. And so now you're probably seeing um, a, a higher degree of tolerance for what we'd call drive-by appraisals, which at least now means you got to take pictures of the exterior. Um, they may require that they at least walk in the backyard and take some pictures from the side and the back too. Um, um, so that, that, that allows for a little bit more flexibility. That's not every institution. It's not every loan, but I'd say it's a lot more common now in yeah. that category. And two, um, you're also seeing uh, uh, for, for people that are putting substantial down payments down, let's say 20% or more, um, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac has a, uh, they have a program called a PIW or a property inspection waiver. And so if you've got pretty high credit scores, putting a good down payment down, um, there's probably a 30% chance, maybe even as much as 50, depending on the day, that they'll grant a waiver, meaning you don't even have to have an appraisal done on the property. The lender is going to use the price of the contract okay. itself. And now is that on a case-by-case basis, meaning that property, this contract, this buyer, it's not blanket, that Correct. waiver? Okay. Correct. It's specific to that, you know, to Jim Brown buying, you know, 33 Palisades Place. Okay. You know, as soon as, if anything falls apart with that transaction, then they're starting over again. Got it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, um, sometimes buyers have to, um, they need to sell their current home before they buy their next home. Um, what are the underwriting guidelines to qualify for the line of credit and the purchase home loan? Yeah. When that um, happens? The interesting topic. The, um, I'm going to give you the short version answer now, and I think that might even be a good follow-up podcast topic because okay. we, could, we could spend some time on that, particularly for people that like to dig in a little bit more. Um, so a little bit more generally speaking, um, people, if they are going to try to qualify to buy something before they sell, they are going to need to qualify for at least two mortgages. If they've got a current loan on their house and the taxes and the insurance payment on their existing house, um, in addition to the mortgage on the new house. Um, and then if they do use a line of credit, let's say from the old house, now maybe you have three mortgages, um, Maybe people aren't familiar with a term, but there's a term called bridge financing that um, is, is is an instrument that institutions, they'll lend you money to help provide the down payment for buying something else. But it, it's still basically a second mortgage mm-hmm. on the house that you're selling. You still have to qualify for three mortgages. So um, not easy for everyone to do that. There are a number of different ways to try to um, position that to make it a little easier for people you know, to do it. But but essentially, you really kind of want to prepare even further in advance, I think, when you're thinking about doing something like that, to educate yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what can I really do mm-hmm. if I want to try to buy first you know, okay. before selling? Right. Okay. So it can be done, but you have to have the income. The debt-to-income ratios have to cover all those three loans, right? Right. And then what about the reserves? Then the reserves uh, also good good point need to be higher because now you have to have in some cases as much as six or twelve months of reserves for both houses, not just the one you're buying. You know, some people might be reacting, and I know just because I talk to borrowers, they'll say, "Well, why do we 
why is that so restrictive? I'm going to put my house on the market, mm -hmm. you know, right away and it's a hot market. It's going to sell fast. Well, in general, mortgage lending kind of assumes the glass a little bit more on the half empty side, not the half full side. Right. So you've got to think in terms of, yeah. you know, what happens if the house doesn't sell? Right. That's the way right. lenders look at it. Markets change. Yeah. By the time mm -hmm. you close on the new home and you put this house on the market, if there's a shift and for some reason it goes, it cools off, it might take longer than you want. You might not get the price you want. Who knows? So yeah, the, the lenders got all the risk in that case. So back to your reserves question. Yeah. It's highly advisable. Not only is it required, but it's highly advisable that you have more reserves just in case things like that happen. Absolutely. Right. 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 So Pete, what are the pros and cons about the strategy of buying your next home first and then selling your current home afterwards? Well, if you don't, and you need the equity out of the house that you own in order to buy the next house, then that forces your hand into writing an offer that has a contingency or should have a contingency to sell the home that you have. And, you know, in a softer market, if you're not in a seller's market, that's pretty much how we sell homes. We used to sell homes that way all the time before the market imbalance with lack of supply and high demand came into play. It was very common to have an offer come in contingent upon the sale of the buyer's home. So in a seller's market, though, you're basically not even in the game. If you have to have that contingency, the odds are very low you're going to get your offer accepted or even get a response from the seller. So if you can qualify and sell your home after you buy the next one, you can eliminate the need for the sale contingency, obviously. And the pros of that is that it strengthens your position to negotiate in a seller's market. Um, you know where you're moving to, right? You know the house that you're buying. It's not a mystery anymore. You've taken that anxiety of, well, if I let go of what I have, where am I going to go? And am I going to like it as much as I have with the house that I have now? So there, it provides certainty. You know where you're going, how much you're paying, when you get to move in. Um, and then it avoids a double move because when you know, you're moving into the next house and then you're selling the one that you have. And so there are costs and the hassle factor associated with making that double move if you're forced into that where you sell first and then buy second. You might have to go into interim housing because of that. The cons of that is that um, it's expensive. Right. I mean, unless you have all cash and you don't have to go out and get a bridge loan or a line of credit, if you have the cash, then you're deploying a lot of assets into real estate, locking it in. Now, some people will do that. Right. And then they'll refinance that house after everything is done. They've sold their other house. They bought the next house. Then they just put a loan. They refinance the house they just bought. Since we're talking about that, are there any minimum timeline guides guidelines for them to be able to do that well um it you know depending on the institution you get the loan through um i would say it's kind of common to be thinking of needing to make six months worth of payments on any loan that you put in place okay um not across the board but somewhat common so six months worth of payments and by the way one slightly creative solution that i've done with some people ahead of time is structure a piggyback loan or a first and second on the house they're buying so, so that now if they've got a $500,000 loan and a $300,000 second, when they sell the, the home that's left behind, turn around and take those uh, wages or those uh, proceeds, pay off the second mortgage. Now they're not forced. Now they just have the payments 
mm-hmm. on the on the on the smaller balance, and uh, so it avoids the requirement to have to uh, not only have the costs of refinancing or the restrictions of waiting six months, but you also don't have to worry about what interest rates might change to. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, yeah I like that. Idea. Great. That solves a lot of problems. So our final topic um, for this episode is the COVID pandemic that we're currently in and how it's affected the housing market and the loan and lending industry. Um, It's a big topic, but Bob, maybe you can kind of speak to how things have changed. We currently still are in the pandemic. And like you said earlier, we don't know when it's going to end, but what are some things that um, has, how has it affected the loan industry? So I'm thinking of maybe the top two or three, because mm-hmm. there's so many yes. that affected. But mainly, we already commented on the changes to the appraisal process or right. whatever, and that's certainly been one of them relative to, to lending. Um, the second one, I would say, maybe what comes top to the list is the category of employment and how to verify employment. Mm-hmm. So lenders, are, that if they used to just verify that somebody worked somewhere at the beginning of the process, uh, and then that was good, you know, and then they got their most recent paycheck stubs that shows mm-hmm. they're still working there. Now, some lenders have as many as four different steps you got to go through. You have it at the beginning, you have it at the approval, you have it when you have your sign your closing documents. Right. And then four days later, the day you close the loan, they got to re-verify again. They are still working there that day, that minute. And do they look at the industry you're working in as well? And do they try to predict how that particular industry has been affected by the <sighs> pandemic? Um. I, no, I wouldn't say, no. is there any targeting of industries? Okay. I'd say it's a little bit more across the board. There's certainly some industries that have been affected more than others. So um, here's the other category that I was going to get to where it is industry specific, um, bonus history. So let's mm. say people are qualifying you know, for a mortgage based on getting a salary plus a bonus from their employer that they've gotten for mm-hmm. five years in a row, let's say. Well, what if suddenly you work for a theme park? Mm-hmm. Or you work for StubHub, or you yeah. manage a Marriott, or all those categories of industries where clearly um, you've been, you know, mm-hmm. disproportionately affected. Well, now lenders are really they're requiring those employers in most cases to put something in writing that says their bonus is still going to continue okay. in the future. Well, a lot of those employers will not do that. So that's clearly a case where the pandemic has affected the lending industry. Right. Yeah. So what about people that are self-employed, self-employed professionals like dentists, doctors, attorneys, yeah. salespeople, whatever it is. It seems to me that, that's, that there has been an impact with that as well. Yes, for sure. And maybe the main, there's been a number of areas where lenders are being more conservative with self-employed people. I'd say if there was a couple cross the board requirements, it's mainly because you, you know, you're not calling to verify employment when you work for yourself. Right. Um, so you're mainly looking at, you know, in most cases, let's say somebody's, you know, we're, we haven't even gotten October 15th, right? So some people haven't even filed their 2019 tax return. Mm-hmm. So for a self-employed person, you might really still be going off of income that ended last December. How in mm-hmm. the heck do you know how they've done for the last nine months? Well, now there are ways to do it. They'll Sometimes they'll require looking at bank statements for the last 90 days to see if they can see deposits that are look you know, kind of in line with what yeah. the tax return showed from the previous year. In some cases, they'll require a letter from their accountants mm-hmm. stating that their business hasn't been materially impacted by the pandemic. Um, and in still other cases, they'll um, they'll actually um, increase the reserve requirement 
uh, for self-employeds. Mm -hmm. So we've seen that. Okay. We've seen like sometimes 18 months worth of reserves needed instead of 12 mm -hmm. when somebody's buying the home. So mm -hmm. those are probably the three biggest areas that I've seen the pandemic affect so lending. the three being employment? Appraisal. Appraisal. And uh, the category of employment. You know, okay. Bonus, right, right. bonus or uh, self-employed. I mean, we've talked a little bit about interest rates already, but that has affected, that's been affected too by the pandemic. Yeah. You could, you could definitely make the contention that rates are a solid three quarters to 1% better because of COVID-19. Right. And so what are some of the lessons this pandemic has taught us about the volatility of financial market conditions affecting home loans? Walk, I mean, this is an extreme, <laughs> this is an extreme example of yeah. volatility is. and we hopefully won't see it again. Again, well, but maybe I mean, we in will. the early weeks of the pandemic, you know, in March, wasn't there a threat of a credit freeze? I mean, that that yes. Uh, yes. seemed to me that we were really concerned that is there going to be a credit market right. because of that? And I think from that, I mean, the government stepped in and they did some extraordinary things that you just described earlier to make sure that things didn't freeze up. But I think as a result of that, didn't underwriting guidelines change? Didn't they become a little more conservative from they, all that? They did. They did. And in some cases, um, well, for a period of time there, maybe 30 to 60 days, some lenders um, would not do jumbo loans. So anything over 765, mm -hmm. there was just a moratorium yeah. um, altogether. But you're right. Even earlier than that, there was... I'd say a couple to three weeks of a very concerning, it reminded me a little bit of the financial crisis. Right. When it, people began to wonder, this isn't just a matter of my 401k accounts dropping. It became very possible that nations were going to stop trading currencies with each other. And yeah. that, if that happened, we would have had a much more severe recession, maybe even depression than we had after the financial crisis. Well, so similarly, their basically mortgage instruments became without getting real technical, they became very illiquid. There almost became no place to sell certain mm -hmm. categories of loans and that's right. not good. Yeah. Yeah, there were no buyers. And so the government stepped in and they became a buyer in the mortgage backed security market for that very reason, to ensure liquidity, right? They they, they, they created basically kind of like interim warehouse um, yeah. scenarios where they basically became kind of a temporary buyer or holder of the mortgages just to hold on to them for a while until a proper mm -hmm. buyer came along. So it, so then would it be fair to say that since then, from that point, that low point, that it's been like a slow thaw in terms of mortgage availability, underwriting standards, appraisal standards, slowly becoming less conservative I, as I, we move forward? I'd say almost yes on all of those. I think in every category, maybe except for self-employed, okay. has gotten mm -hmm. tighter. So that's gotten tighter. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's interesting distinction because, you know, if you're self-employed before you put yourself out there or get wrapped up in a binding agreement and have deposits on something, it makes sense that you go all the way through the approval process first to make sure that your unique situation is self-employed, you're financeable, right? For sure. More now more than ever, and and some people might think, well, gosh, that why does that why are self-employed people attack so highly? But if you think about it statistically, a really high percentage of people that own their own small businesses are self-employed. Um, a lot of those people got you know got PPP loans, right? The assistance from the mm -hmm. government. Well, those only lasted for a certain period of time, 
um, and then you had certain parameters and requirements and everything. Well, we're getting to that point now where a lot of those people have used those funds. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe not entirely, but a significant percentage of them. So now it's lenders are realizing, okay, what's the follow-up back to that now? Mm-hmm. Has your business bounced back sufficiently? Um, are you still hanging in there? They've got to look at that. And you could look at it like, gee, this is really kind of a, um, is kind of a, an attack, if you will, or a, or a, or, a, or too you know punitive right. to people in that category. But they're you know realistically, lenders are they don't want to take a house back from somebody. Right. So they're kind of helping you out as well as yeah. helping themselves out. They don't want to put you in a situation where yeah. this house may be real attractive yeah. to you, but if you're in a situation you can't afford this six months from now, that's not good for you or for me. Yeah, that's right. And so those PPP loans or the other uh, SBA loans that are available, I forget the acronym for them. Aren't those aren't they required to repay those loans? And if so, aren't isn't that part of how they look at their debt load and their they, debt obligations? They do, and, and we're still in that interim period. You know, yeah. the, the, I think the technical requirement was uh, it was a very low interest rate for those loans, one percent, I believe, um, mm-hmm. in the where they could demonstrate that they didn't lay off either any or a more than ten percent of their employees, and they were allowed to actually turned into a grant instead of a loan. Right. I've heard from people and accountants that there is a lot of um, uncertainty as to what mm-hmm. counted and what didn't. And I think we're still in that stage of, mm-hmm. I don't know if a lot of people really know at this point yet, if it really is. It. So what do lenders do when they don't know? They they consume, the, they assume the conservative position, right. which is it's going to be a debt. So they'll generally use 1% okay. of whatever that balance is. Okay. Good to know. There's one other category worth bringing up too, because it's related to the mm-hmm. pandemic, and that is um, if people have used the term or heard the term forbearance mm-hmm. used yes. before. Yeah. So effectively, it, it, forbearance in the big scheme is just a, a term that states financially, at least that that um, that either because you've decided to or the lenders allowed you to, you you're you're not making payments right. on that loan right. right now. It's like a pause. Mm-hmm. It's a pause, mm-hmm. but you have to make those payments in the future at some point. Yeah. Correct. Right. Correct. So student loans, for example, were granted uh, by the current administration of, of, I think, an automatic pause through October, I believe. So they weren't, nobody's okay. required to make student loan payments or there's no interest that can accrue to October. But lenders are still using 1% of student loan payments because they know people have to eventually make pay them back. Okay. So it helps the consumer, but it's still going to be factored into your qualifications. Uh, you okay. know. Yeah. Similarly with those PPP loans, um, you know, that could still okay. be used as a debt and a forbearance in the case of a mortgage is a, the, 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 we're over 8% of all mortgages in the United States right now are in forbearance. What that means is, you know, those people aren't making their payments and it's an agreement with them and the lender. So mm-hmm, it's not like mm-hmm. they're not recording late payments for it. But to Pete's point, they do have to be paid back. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, they've got to be paid back like over the next year. Right. In some cases, they're getting tacked on to the end of the loan. There's still a lot of uncertainty as to how, how all that shakes out. But what does, the reason I'm bringing it up is mainly a lot of people think just because they're not getting reported as lates for being in forbearance yeah. that they're going to be fine right. moving forward. But the real truth is most lenders won't lend to you if you're in forbearance for the next 12 oh, months. Interesting. After you're out of forbearance. After you're out of forbearance. Right. Interesting. I don't think enough people know that. So another reason to, yeah. Right, yeah. another reason to prepare talk, ahead of time. Prepare ahead and talk and to make sure. your lender. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that wraps it up for this episode. Um, any other thoughts for Bob, Pete? Any other questions? I think we went over.
quite a bit. We did. We covered a lot of ground today. Mm-hmm. We're hoping that uh, our listeners found value in that. And we really appreciate your time and coming here and sharing all your insider financing trade secrets with us. That's great. Um, so with if, that. Yeah. If, if okay. anybody wants to find Bob Casper, it's C-A-S-P-E-R. And you are with? Cross Country Mortgage. Cross Country Mortgage. And his phone number is 925-324-2029. You can reach out to him with any questions. Can I, it was just one thing I was going to add. Yeah. yeah. We've gone over a lot of information here. And I, I don't, you know, sometimes I'm sitting back and I'm thinking if I've listened to a lot or all of this, my head could be spinning a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I just, I guess I want to say if you can, one of the advantages of picking the right professional, whoever they are, mm-hmm. um, could be can, making a lot of sense out of this. So you don't need to memorize all this. Yes. It's helpful to know it. But if you pick the right exactly. people, they can guide and navigate yes. you through all this. And you don't need to be losing sleep at night trying to figure exactly. out all, all the answers. Yeah, you exactly. don't have to figure out what the right questions are to ask. If right. you're working with a real pro, they're going to help you tailor make your situation and find the solutions for you and protect you from doing things you shouldn't and help you get the things that you want. Exactly. Good point. All right. Well, thank you very much, Bob, for being here. Thanks for having me. um, This concludes our second episode. Stay tuned for the next one. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. We hope you enjoy our real estate pro tips and strategies, and we encourage you to share our podcast with anyone you know who is looking to buy or sell a home. Be sure to like and subscribe, and if you're watching on YouTube, ring the bell next to the subscribe button so you won't miss a single episode. Thank you to our producer, Sam Lubman, with Painless Podcast for making this podcast happen. I'm Leslie Whitney with Pizza Bean, and we are the five-star real estate team. Join us for our next episode of Real Estate Pro Tips and Strategies. Call or text 925-297-5335 to reach us with your questions and referrals, or send an email to info at 5starrealestatepro.com. Thank you.